I want to do a couple of things this morning as we read through this passage. There's a couple of familiar passages that we know that we've all heard many times here in John chapter 6. Jesus is going to feed the 5,000, right, with the, with the bread and the fish, and then he's going to walk on the water, okay? Um, but but I, I want to pull out some different things in this text this morning. So one of the things I want to do this morning is I want to do some teaching on the text. I want to do some teaching on the scripture. I want to make some connections between Old Testament and New Testament because I want you to understand the majesty or the fullness of scripture. Because we've been, I talked about a little bit last week is that doctrine or theology or principle, true statements of scripture shape the things that we believe. It shapes our understanding. And so I, I want to point out some of the richness and fullness of the text this morning because it's not just uh, what we see face value here of Jesus turning uh, five loaves and two fish into feeding 5,000 people. And it's not just Jesus walking on the water. Jesus is demonstrating something much greater than that. That in and of itself is great because in order to take these five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000, that's a divine work, a divine power that only, uh, that only Jesus, the only God can do. And walking on, the law, walking on the water, very similar. It's a divine power that only something God can do. And so we see in the person of Jesus in, in, in these stories, you see his divinity. You see that he is God. Okay, but, but so I want to do some teaching. There's more than... There's more than that going on here, okay? And the second thing I want to do is, is I want to get practical, okay, after that. About what, 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 okay, what does that mean for me? What does that mean walking home uh, out, out of the gym this morning? What does that mean for me during the week, okay? Um, and, and so it all hinges upon this. If you remember last week in John chapter 5, at the end of 5, at the end of 5, um, we, we, we talked about how Jesus had told these Jewish leaders that, hey, the reason why you don't see me, the reason why you don't accept me as the Messiah, the Son of God, who I am claiming to be, is because you've put all your hope in Moses, your spiritual forefather. That's the reason why you don't see me. You're not seeking the glory of God. You're seeking the glory of yourself, and you put all your hope in Moses. Okay, and so what we see here and what we read in John chapter 6 all hinges upon that thought. Okay, Jesus told them, you put in your hope in Moses, and that's why you can't see me, because you don't understand that what Moses wrote points to me. But then Jesus is going to actually model out for them. He's going to do some works in which even prove more so that what Moses was doing and that what Moses said pointed to him. Okay, and so... uh, I'm going to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Don't flip there. You can if you want, but I'm just going to be here for a second. And I want you to store these things in your head as we move to John chapter 6. Deuteronomy 18, 15 says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you. Okay, this is Moses speaking. He's telling Israel, the Lord is going to raise up a prophet to come. Then at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 33, the last paragraph, last section in Deuteronomy says this. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord had sent him to do in the land of Egypt. To Pharaoh and to all of his servants and to all his land. 
and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Keep those things stored in you as we walk through. Okay, John chapter 6, Moses says that there is going to come a prophet from among us, and you shall listen to him. At the end of Deuteronomy, as a recap, said there has not been a prophet like Moses since. And all the words, and all the, and all the power, and God knew face to face because Moses saw, you know, saw God, met with God, spoke on behalf of God. There has not been a prophet that has arisen since. And so then we pick up here in John chapter 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus had been walking around with his disciples demonstrating these things. It says here that he was, he was healing the sick, and so there was these large crowds following him. And Philip, one of his disciples, should know that Jesus has miraculous powers to do whatever, whatever he pleases to do. Whatever the Father shows him, Jesus has the capability to do. And so Jesus goes, hey, what are we going to do with all these people? How are we going to feed them? And, he's, and he asked this question to test Philip. Because ultimately, as someone who walks next to Jesus and you've seen the things Jesus, you know, Jesus can do, the response ought to be, well, Jesus, you know. You, you know what to do. And then this isn't out of your control. This isn't out of your power to feed these people. Verse 7, but Philip answered and said, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Right? Philip was like, ah, we're, we're in a predicament here. We're in predicament, Jesus. There's, a, there, there's some despair in his tone here, saying even if we had to engineer, it wouldn't be enough. We can only feed a portion, just a little portion of these people. There's despair in his tone here. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew Simon, Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And so you see another disciple here going, yeah, I don't know what we're going to do. There's a tone of despair. Even what this little boy has here is not going to do anything for this crowd. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish. As much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus takes what this little boy has the five barley loaves, the two fish, and he gives thanks, praise over it, distributes them. To all the people, people were full. They had 12 baskets left over. A lot of you know the story. What I want to point out here, what we read back in Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses said, there's going to be a prophet that comes, that arises after me. And you shall listen to what he has to say. And so after Jesus performs this miracle, what do the people say here? When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this indeed the prophet. 
This indeed the prophet who is to come in the world because the Jewish people understood the Old Testament. They understood Moses' words. All of their hope was in Moses. If your hope is in something, that means you, you, you understand something well. I wouldn't put my hope in something that I didn't understand very well. The Jewish people knew who Moses was, knew what Moses said, knew what Moses had done. And so they see what Jesus did here and they go, that's the prophet. That's the prophet that Moses was talking about. But for, 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 for to somebody to call Jesus prophet, okay, you, you see several times in Scripture, Jesus will be referred to as a prophet or the good teacher. Or I can tell you're a prophet, right? And this term is used by people who really don't know a whole lot about who Jesus is. Because Jesus is much more than a prophet. Yes, he is the prophet. But he's much more than that. And you see that these Jewish people recognize what Moses had said. That this is the prophet that is to come. But they didn't understand exactly what they meant. Because if we go here in 15, we see this. This is what they thought the prophet was going to do. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Because these Jewish people thought that Jesus was going to be like Moses. Because what did Moses do? Moses liberated Israel from Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. And Moses came and liberated them and went through the 40-year journey through the wilderness, crossed the Red Sea, led them to the Promised Land. He liberated them. At this time, Israel is under Roman rule. And so they're thinking, oh, the prophet that is prophesied that's going to come, this guy is going to liberate us from Roman rule just like Moses liberated us from Egypt. And so Jesus, perceiving that this is what they're thinking, perceiving that they're about to come and grab him by authority and place him as king to start this rebellion, to start this kingship where he's going to liberate them from Roman rule, Jesus fled and went up to the mountain. Because you've got to understand this. Jesus' kingship, what he came for first, was a spiritual reign. He didn't come to liberate Israel from Roman rule. He came to liberate Israel and he came to liberate you and I from evil and death. From evil and death. That's why he came. That's what he came to liberate us from. And so when, they, when he perceived that these people were coming to take him, to put him as king, because they wanted to be liberated, that's what they thought Jesus was doing. That's what they thought the next prophet was going to do for them. Jesus went and fled because like, no, no, I'm here for something else. I'm here for your life. I'm here for eternity. I'm here to save you from eternal death. I'm not just a prophet. I'm the son of God who has come, died in your place, was raised three days later so that I could liberate you from death, from evil, from yourself. But his action of feeding the 5,000 models what you see Moses doing. Right? Jesus has this crowd following him because of the signs that he had been performing. 
and he feeds them. What do you see Moses doing after the, the, the plagues, the signs in Egypt? He was leading a crowd for 40 years in the wilderness in the promised land. And he fed them through manna. But the difference here between Moses and Jesus is that Jesus himself has the power to provide for his people. Where God had sent down the manna for Israel. There's a connection here. Verse 16. Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. In 16, when the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him to the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Understand that Jesus had just given the sign, a greater sign than what Moses had done with feeding the people with manna in the wilderness. Jesus had taken himself five barleys, two fish, and had blessed it and fed 5,000. So you see that connection with what Moses was doing. But then you also, one of the big things that Moses do, if you remember in Exodus, is that they came to the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his army was pursuing Israel. And they were trapped there at the Red Sea. And so God told Moses, hey, go forward. And so by, 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 by God's power, he used a strong east wind to part the Red Sea and they traveled on dry land to the other side. Well, his disciples are here in the boat traveling across the lake here. And there was a a strong east wind that came. And there was a storm brewing. And then they see Jesus walking on the water to them. And then when Jesus got in the boat, it says that they immediately, don't miss that. They immediately, when he got in the boat, found themselves on the other side. Moses led his people through the Red Sea because God had parted the sea and they walked through the dry land. Jesus, the greater Moses, the prophet to come after him, walked on the water, calmed the sea. Immediately when he got in the boat, got them to the other side in safety. You see the connection. This is the prophet. Jesus in chapter five, chapter 5 was telling the Jewish people, I am the one that Moses was pointing to. I am he. Was verbally telling them. And then here in John chapter 6, he takes his deeds and replicates what Moses had did back in Exodus, but took it to another degree. He's showing them, I am the prophet that Moses was pointing to. We, I was reading this this week and, and seeing these connections. And this is why I want to teach you the scripture. Seeing these connections, seeing the fullness of scripture makes you stop. And it makes you stop and worship. Because I've read this passage. I've read these stories several times. Never made these connections. And it's beautiful because it's one story. God's writing one story from left to right. 
one salvation story. And it all supports itself. There's no contradictions here. It's systematic theology. It all works together in fullness. And it gives evidence. It's a witness for its authenticate, you know, its authenticity. It's it, authentic. It is authentic, okay? <laughs> Forgive me. It's a witness against itself. God's word, he doesn't need another witness. He doesn't need another witness. And when you dive into scripture and you see these things, when God reveals these things to you, it'll grow you. Your faith will take root deeper because the Bible is not without reason. It's not without logic. It's not, it's not this, this uh, conceptual, feel-good, therapeutic thing. It can stand on its own. And you get in there and you read and you spend time in God's word, you'll see that. It stands on its own. And what it does for you is, it, is that it, you, it, you, you take root in that you begin to trust the things that God says about you. Because you believe this is true. You trust who God is. You trust what he's called you to. You trust his promises. It becomes the filter for your life, for your decisions, for your thoughts. It becomes the piece that you lean on because you have experienced the trueness of it. You have wrestled with it. I encourage you, ask questions, wrestle with it. Because you'll come to find there's no holes here. There's no holes. It's a beautiful picture of the connection of one story that God is writing. Deuteronomy 18.15, there will be a prophet to come. The end of Deuteronomy says there hasn't been a prophet like Moses until Jesus comes and does greater works. And Jesus is trying to get these people to see this. Practically, what does this mean? What does it mean for me that Jesus is the prophet that Moses talked about and that Jesus is the greater prophet? What does that mean for me? Okay, I get it. I see it in scripture. I see the connection here. What does that mean for me? Back up to 15. I want to hang out in verse 15 for the rest of our time this morning. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself, okay? Remember, they thought that he was going to be like Moses and liberate them from Israel, or from Roman rule. Jesus had different things on his mind. He said, no, I'm going to liberate you from yourself. I'm going to liberate you from eternal death. I'm going to give you my spirit And you're going to live in fellowship with God the Father for eternity. With no more suffering, no more evil. That's the promise. That's what I've come to do. And so I'm not going to let you come and take me by authority right now and place me as king king because that's not what I'm here for. But you see the Jewish people here had a wrong placed assumption about who Jesus was. They had a wrong-placed assumption about who the prophet was. 
They had a wrongly placed assumption about what the prophet was supposed to do. And this wrong placed assumption led them to an action. They were going to go take him. What they believed led them to action. And what I see a lot right now is that we have a bunch of wrong placed assumptions about what makes us, what, what, what can bring us security. Because these people thought if they put Jesus as king, that they would, they would be secure as Israel because Jesus would liberate them from the harsh Roman rule. That was their thought. That was their security. And it was a wrong placed assumption. Yes, Jesus would liberate them from Roman rule, but because only because he liberated them from themselves and provided a promise, an eternity at the best is yet to come, which means Roman rule has no authority over my life. Because I know that this life isn't it. But they had a wrong placed assumption that their security was going to be found in being liberated from Roman rule. And we have a lot of wrong placed assumptions about what makes us secure as people, about how we think that we can be secure as people. I was doing marriage counseling earlier this week with a couple that's about to get married. And one of the things that I told them was don't, don't, don't find your security in each other. Don't find your security in each other. And that's, a, that's, that's something that's so counter, counterproductive or, or counter, that's a counter message than what our society and culture tells us. You're, the other person's supposed to complete us. They're, they're supposed to make me feel secure. Yes, they are. But they're supposed to partner with God in making you feel secure. Ultimately, you need to find your security in what God says about you. And what God's done for you. Because what happens is when you find your security in somebody else, you will start to manipulate that person to get the needs that you desire. And that's what you see these Jewish people here doing. Their assumption was that you're my security. And the way I'm going to get security is that you're going to liberate us from Roman rule. So therefore, I'm going to manipulate, I'm going to try and manipulate your actions. By taking, you by, uh, you know, by taking you by authority and placing you as king so that I can get the security that I need. All the while, this is not what Jesus had come for. I was telling my wife this a few weeks ago. I said the same thing to her. Don't find your security in me. Your security comes from God. He is the only one that can fulfill that. I can partner with God and what he's doing in your life. There are some responsibilities I have that God has called me to in the marriage that partner with him in that. But your security comes from him. Because if you don't get it from him, you're going to manipulate me to get what you need. 
Whatever it is that I do that makes you feel secure, you're going to make sure that you put yourself in a position or you're going to do something to invoke a response out of me to give you that it is which you need. And so then what happens is that you're really just serving yourself. Whereas if your security came from God, you wouldn't need anything from me. And you would be freed up to love, freed up to serve without any bounds. And if my security comes from God, then I don't need anything from my wife. And I'm freed up to love and I'm freed up to serve her without any bounds. I don't have to manipulate her to get anything that I need, but I'm free to love and to serve her. And here's the beautiful thing about marriage. When you have two people who are totally secure and find their security in who God is and what God says about them, and they're free and they stand on that, then both parties are able to love and serve each other without any bounds and nobody has any needs. Because I'm not looking out for my needs, I'm looking out for hers. And she's not looking out for her needs, she's looking out for mine. But it all comes back to what are your assumptions? Because if I were to assume that my security is found in her, well, the symptom would be much like Israel. I would manipulate her to get what I need, just like Israel tried to manipulate Jesus to get what they needed. What are your assumptions about what makes you feel secure as a person? And what I mean by security, meaning that you know that you are worth it, meaning that you know that there is hope and a purpose for you. Where do you find that? Because if it's not in Jesus, if it's not in the prophet in which Moses talked about, it's a wrong place to assumption. And you can see the symptoms of a wrong place to assumption. Anxiety is a symptom of a wrong place to assumption. Depression is a symptom of a wrong place to assumption. Adultery is a symptom of a wrong place to assumption. Idolatry is a symptom of a wrong place to assumption. Needing to get your, 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 your uh, stimulus from social media, needing to see people like your things, is a symptom of a wrong place to assumption. Because if you were secure in what God says about you and about who you are, then you wouldn't be waiting for everybody else's likes. It's a symptom of a wrong placed assumption thinking I can get security and feel goodism and a hope from watching people like and comment on what I post. And social media is just one example of a symptom. We use it to cope. But it's a wrong place assumption. 
thinking that it's going to be the antidote for whatever problem we have is a wrong-placed assumption. Jesus is the only person who can provide security in your life. And by security, I mean this. I don't mean monetary security. I don't mean physical security. I don't mean uh, any type of... When I say security, the security that Jesus provides is that you have a hope for eternity, that you were made on purpose with a purpose. And your security is found. It's like I I met with a a, a, a retirement guru this past week, right, to set up for the future. Because when it comes to the end, you know, I'm not saying I'm going to stop working. I don't know. Probably not. I'll probably die up here, okay? But I'm setting up for the future that there will come a time where there will be something for me to draw off of. And this is what God says by security. There's going to come a time when your life is done, when your life is over, and there will be something for you in the end. Eternity with the Father in fellowship. Total bliss, no suffering, no tears, no evil. The world will be as it was created to be in the beginning, forever, for the rest of eternity. When you come to the end of your life in me, that's what you will receive. And that's the security that Jesus came for and was talking about here. Placing our security in anything other than that is a wrong place assumption. And when we have those, we will get symptoms that will lead us into paths of destruction. What makes you feel secure? In your marriage, what makes you feel secure? Financially, what makes you feel secure? Individually, your personal life, what makes you feel secure? These are questions you ought to ask yourself. And you ought to look at your life honestly and go, what are those things? What do I find myself doing? What do I find myself running to in times of stress? In times where I need a break. In times where I need to slow down. In times when I'm angry. In times of confusion. Where do I go? Because where you go in those times is going to reveal where you find your security at. And I'm preaching to myself this morning. Hear me. I am preaching to myself this morning. This is something that God has been revealing in my life over the last couple of months. Zach, where are you going when you get stressed? Where are you going when things get weighty? Where are you going? 
You going to me? You finding your security in me? You think you can get it there? No, that's a wrong place assumption. And what happens is you're going to walk down a path of destruction there. It all comes back to having the right understanding, the right perspective about who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do in your life. Because when you get that piece right, and that's why I say we're not going anywhere as a church without this. That's why I ask you to bring it with you. We're not going anywhere without this. Because this is what leads us to understanding who Jesus is and what he came for. And when we understand that, we won't have any wrong placed assumptions. When we believe that, we'll go to him. We'll find our security there. That's what Jesus was trying to get these Jewish leaders to understand. I want you guys to understand who I am. I want you to understand what I've came to do in your life. Because it's everything. It's eternity. What's at stake is eternity. Both then and in the now, too. Because if we place our security in something other than Jesus in the now, this life here on earth, your emotional health, mental health, physical health, spiritual health is at stake. We sang that song, Freedom Reigns. Right? You want to be free? Want to feel free as a person? Not chained, not bound by anything. Free to love people, free to serve, don't care what people's perceptions of me are. I can walk as the Spirit leads me. Totally free. It starts with finding your security in Christ. Because when you believe what He says about you, nothing else matters. The band's going to come back up. And we're going to continue to worship. I challenge those of you that are married here this morning, have that conversation with your spouse. Talk about security together. Talk about what that means. Because you don't want to enable the other person to find their security in you. It's unhealthy. And so how do I walk with you and encourage you to find your security in Christ? That way we are both able to love and serve one another free without bounds. Those of you that are single in the room, where do you find your security at? Are you okay with being single? You think God doesn't have a purpose for you in that? Teenagers in the room, students. I 
I plead with you, beg you to stop looking for affirmation from people on social media. I'm begging you. You know it's deception. You know it's not real. You know it's a lie. You know that the images that you create with a photo that aren't real, that aren't reality, you know those things are lies. And you know that people's feedback to those things, when you lay down at night and you put your head on the pillow, do nothing to help with your anxiety. Do nothing to help with your depression. Do nothing to help with your identity as a person. I'm pleading with you. Run from those things. Run from it. Find your affirmation in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we want to experience what you say in scripture, that if we are in you, that if you you have set us free, then we are free indeed. We wanna experience that. And so God, we know that your scripture says that that life is found in you, which means that who we are is found in you and nothing else. We don't want any wrong placed assumptions anymore. No wrong placed assumptions. We, we wanna go back to the truth and only you. There's nothing but you, no one but you, only you who can satisfy us and make us feel secure in a way which allows us to walk in freedom. God, I pray that we would continue to come to your text, continue to come to your scripture, continue to be made new by it, to see the majesty of your word, to see that you don't need anybody to vouch for you, but you stand up on your own. And so we trust you. Thank you for revealing your fullness to us in your son. We get to see who you are in him. And we get to have a relationship with you. God, thank you. Amen. When we think rightly about who Jesus is, and what Jesus has done, then we can sit as one of his disciples in the midst of a crowd in which Jesus asks, how am I going to feed these people? We can sit and go, I know you can. When we think rightly about who Jesus is and what he's done, we could sit in a boat with storms around us and be secure knowing Jesus walks on water. When we think rightly about who he is, we will find security in that. And so what I want you guys to do this morning as you walk out 
of the doors and you head to your car and you see all the white snow, you see it on the trees, on the ground, you see it blanketing everything. That's what I look like in Christ. Because I believe in who he is, that's what my insides look like. When God looks at me, that's what he sees because his son's righteousness was given to me. And so that's what God thinks about me. I am that white. I am that pure. That when I stand before God in eternity, that's what he, that's what he will see because that's what his word says. And so as you walk out and as you see that, let that be your security. Let that be your security. Okay? Meet somebody new this morning before you head out. Okay? We'll see you next week.